Welcome to the Primordial Soup Pot. My name is Aaron. And I'm Rustin. Every two weeks, Russ and I get together to discuss topics in the field of ecology, natural history, and evolution. And this time, we are going back to the deep. Yes, back to the deep. Although this time it's more general. We're not going specifically into the deep sea, just the deep. Uh, side note, Rustin is currently house-sitting right now, so if you hear any thumping, I think the upstairs neighbors are doing like a late-night Zumba class right now. What's actually going on is they, they have small children that are just running around all over the place, which is fine. I like mine better. <laughs> or maybe both. Maybe they just have a Zumba class of small children. And they have to be on the top floor to do it. Exactly. Anyways, I believe I am up first this time around. So, I'm going to be talking about Movile Cave. Have you heard of this? No, definitely not. Okay, so like I said, this is a deep environment, but it's not in the ocean. This is freshwater. Okay, so Movile Cave, you might have seen it before. It's spelled Movile, but it's pronounced Movile. So Movile Cave is located in Magalia, Romania, close to the coast of the Black Sea, but it is not part of it. This cave is a twisty labyrinth of limestone passages. In total, it's about 200 meters or 600 feet long. So it's not a super big cave. It's very narrow and windy. I, I actually learned after I started researching this, the cave is not that deep from the surface either. So this isn't really like the deep as much as it is the intermediate? Well, I mean, deep is relative. Okay, I guess. If you fell in a 10-foot hole, would you think it's pretty deep? It's a lot worse than a 2-foot hole. You know? I see your point. But I'm not doing a podcast about falling in a 10-foot hole now, am I? <laughs> no, I guess you're not. Regardless, this cave only goes about 30 meters or 100 feet deep. Which, you know, it's, it's not nothing, but does not compare very well to the deep sea, which goes much deeper. Well, yes. Yes. So I'm assuming there's got to be something really, really cool in this cave to offset this lack of depth. Oh, Absolutely. This cave was discovered fairly recently in 1986 by a guy named Christian Lascaux. And originally the plan was actually to examine the region for a thermal power station. And during the surveys, the researchers identified a small and narrow cave system that has been completely sealed off from the rest of the world for what they estimate about 5 million years. How did they make that estimation? Well, no sunlight enters this cave, no nutrients or air enter this cave, and one dead giveaway is that this cave had no radioactive isotopes inside of it either. To put this in perspective, radioactive isotopes are virtually everywhere in all the oceans, thanks to nuclear testing, and in Romania in particular, it has radioactive isotopes in all the soil, thanks to Chernobyl incident, but this cave had none of it. So that was a very good sign that this cave has been undisturbed for a very long time. Okay. Okay. So how do they know it was a cave and not just like a really, really effective bomb shelter? What is a cave if not a really effective bomb shelter? Well, not all caves can withstand nuclear bombs. So. And not all bomb shelters have stalactites in them. So. Right. Again, it's all relative. So those are the well-decorated nuclear bomb shelters. This probably wouldn't be the best bomb shelter because even though this, it's a widespread cave, it's very narrow and sprawling. It is not like a big chasm you walk into. To get around the cave, you're going to be crawling the whole time. The cave is split into two layers. The top consists of several windy clay caverns 
And there's actually a documentary where they explore this. It was called The Secret Underworld, Nat Geo. You can see the researchers explore the cave. It is just big enough for one person to barely squeeze through. You have to get on all fours to kind of crawl around in here. So this is definitely not something for the claustrophobic to watch. Okay. A couple things. First, you said this documentary was called The Secret Underworld? Yeah. How many organized crime enthusiasts do you think clicked on this documentary expecting to see something very, very different? <laughs> expecting some kind of mafia documentary and instead they get caves? Just a couple Romanian guys crawling around in some holes. It was right. a good documentary. Don't get me wrong. Oh, I, I'm sure it was. I'm just imagining all these really enthusiastic Goodfellas fans being like, what the hell is this bullshit? And then second, that sounds honestly terrifying. I would never want to be there. It'd be a unique privilege to go into it, but not for me. Too small. It's too small for anyone, really. You, you can't stand up in the cave. And they can only send three researchers in at a time. That is the max amount. So, like I said, this cave system, at the top, is just a bunch of windy tunnels. Except in the middle, and that's where things get interesting. Because there's a lake. There we go. Now we're, now we're making progress here. It's kind of like a second story, almost. Where there's a clear divide between the top layers and the lake below. And there's like a couple air pockets to crawl and points to crawl out of. So it's literally like a basement with a couple stairs that take you to a top layer in the way that it is split. And the lake isn't huge. I mean, if you look at the lake, it's not a big lake by any means. But it has one very special thing going for it. Any guesses? Uh, some kind of hydrogeologic activity? Exactly. Hit the nail on the head. Hydrothermal vents at the bottom. And when you get hydrothermal vents, what do you get? Hydrogen sulfide, usually. Some kind of chemosynthetic activity. You, you get life. <laughs> You're thinking a bit too specifically. <laughs> Completely separate from sunlight, yes. <laughs> yeah. So the water in the bottom comes deep from a spongy limestone beneath the cave, and it enters these hydrothermal vent areas. This actually keeps it at a nice 21 degrees Celsius, or about 70 degrees Fahrenheit year-round. Oh, Oh, quite lovely. Like you said, this is crucial because these vents introduce sulfur into the environment. And this is the key to supporting a diverse community of animals without access to the surface world. So we actually see this in the deep sea. And I believe we touched on this in the past before. What is unique about this cave, it is a deep sea, but in a landlocked cave. Okay. And the water is freshwater, right? Like it's not... The water is freshwater. Okay. I mean, maybe, maybe it's like a little salty. I wouldn't drink it. <laughs> I definitely wouldn't drink it. <laughs> I mean, you could drink it. You just probably wouldn't live to tell very many people after that. So the sulfur enters in the form of hydrogen sulfide, and there is a diverse community of bacteria that convert this hydrogen sulfide into energy. Chemotrophs. And they act as the primary producer of this ecosystem. Another byproduct of the hydrogen sulfide is that it is constantly eroding away at the limestone, and the cave system is slowly expanding. This also causes a lot of carbon dioxide to be released. So the air in this cave has half the amount of oxygen as air on the surface, and 100 times the amount of carbon dioxide. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's not great for humans. No, it is also filled with sulfur gas and absolutely stinks. 
The researchers have said that this cave smells like burnt rubber, rotten eggs, and every time you disturb the water, it gets worse because it releases it all. Sounds like a great place to go fart without anyone knowing. <laughs> no one would pick up on it. <laughs> You'd make no difference. Unless you're very unlucky and it happens to echo. Well, yeah, but there are ways of getting around that. <laughs> Cough. Sorry, guys, drop my flashlight. <laughs> Anyways, so yeah, if you're going to research this area, you really got to be dedicated to science. When I talk about hydrogen sulfide, obviously bacteria, I mean, you can find that virtually anywhere on Earth. That's not a huge surprise. Microorganisms, we find them in a lot of places. It's not a huge shocker. But because of the bacteria that are producing energy from the hydrogen sulfide, it actually allows a very diverse ecosystem of many different invertebrates in the cave. Sadly, no fish, but a lot of really cool invertebrates. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that makes sense. That's what happens around hydrothermal vents in the ocean. Yeah, so this is basically, like I said, a hydrothermal vent, except landlocked and underground. This cave is home to about 52 species of arthropods, including isopods, snails, leeches, centipedes, spiders, and more. And of the 52 species, 30 are endemic to this cave alone. And now I'm going to kind of walk you through the whole ecosystem because it's not a ton of animals. You can kind of sum it up. So, of course, the primary producers are the diverse chemotrophic bacteria. They are constantly converting the sulfur and or the nitrogen into energy. There's also some different fungi species present as well. In the water, you can find several protists that feed on the bacteria. And you can find some larger microorganisms like rotifers, copepods, ostracods, and a couple different worm species that feed on these bacterial mats. Okay, and then are these organisms structured differently than their counterparts outside of caves? So across the board, for all the animals in this cave, they all have a couple trends. Number one is they lose all pigmentation. There's no need for it. No sunlight in here. Doesn't matter. A lot of them lose their eyes as well. To make up for that, they usually get longer limbs or antenna to help them feel around in the dark. So when you take an animal and you put it in a cave, essentially what it does is it loses pigmentation and it kind of sprawls out, gets more gangly. It's very much a Frodo versus Gollum comparison. That's a really good point. I was also picturing a child who's really, really into video games and just spends all summer inside. And then at the end of the summer, when they go back to school, you compare the video game child to like everyone else. Yeah, the video game child just completely loses their eyesight. Well, that wasn't part of the metaphor, but <laughs> sure. Because as we all know, eyesight is not very important for video games. Okay, but Gollum kept his eyesight too, so your metaphor didn't cover that part of the adaptation anyway. Well, he had to see the precious. Right, exactly. That's what I'm saying. I was talking mostly about the pigment thing. I think my metaphor holds up. You don't have to make fun of me. Most of the animals in this cave are pretty small. Like I said, there's a lot of protists. There's a lot of, you know, essentially plankton, very small arthropods. In the water, you can find on the surface springtails, which is not an insect, but it is closely related to insects. And they're so tiny, they can live their entire life on the surface of the water without ever breaking through. And the aquatic life is fairly simple. You have the primary producers in the bacteria, the primary consumers being a variety of worms and small crustaceans. And the top predators in the lake portion are a species of leech, 
a predatory leech. There's actually quite a few of these. Not all of them are parasites. And a type of insect known as a water scorpion. This place sounds terrifying. I mean, they're all tiny, but it's a little freaky. I'm not going to lie. The top predators are leeches and scorpions? Water scorpions. So water scorpions are not actual scorpions. They are an insect in the order Hemiptera. It's the same order as cicadas and assassin bugs. So they have a straw-like proboscis that they use to drain the fluid out of their prey, which maybe makes them a bit more scary. Yeah, that makes them a lot more cuddly. (laughs) They don't have stingers, but they have an elongated tube that acts like a snorkel that allows them to hang below the surface and still breathe. And it comes out their anus, so it kind of looks like a stinger. Okay, so they're like scorpions who are taking inspiration from the hunt for Red October. Yeah, it sums it up pretty well. And they still have the uh, raptorial arms that they use to grab prey. So they are the uh, top dogs on the aquatic side of things. There's other animals in the water that I didn't touch on, like uh, uh, there's some small snails in there as well. As far as predators go, the leeches and the water scorpions are the top dogs. The terrestrial side, the food web, is actually a bit more complicated. We have a larger variety of invertebrates, which includes isopods, beetles, flies, spiders, pseudoscorpions, which are not scorpions. They're an arachnid that looks just like a scorpion that's really tiny with no stinger. Like, less than an eighth of an inch tiny. Millipedes, springtails, and more. The terrestrial wildlife is unique because even though they don't live in the water, they have to live near it because that is where all the life is. That's where the bacteria is. So it's a balancing act of living near the water where the food is versus living higher up in the cave where there's more oxygen. Makes sense. I'm really glad a scientist discovered this place instead of like an arachnophobe with several cans of raid because this could have gone down very differently. I'm glad a scientist discovered this instead of some poor guy that just tripped and fell. Well, the poor guy who just tripped and fell would have gotten really, really scared and then gotten the hell out of there. If he can even get his way out. True, true. You make two wrong turns and you you can't see the sun anymore. Also could have died horribly, but the arachnophobe would have nuked the whole place before leaving. So now we get to study these cool and rather creepy animals. Like I said, it's a balancing act between the land and the water. So most of the animals actually live kind of just above the water section. There's a lot of air pockets. What is it like separate regions divided by the water? And you'll find a lot of these insects like along the walls or ledges right there. The most abundant animals, as I already mentioned, are the springtails. And they are kind of the primary consumers. They can live right on top of these bacterial mats that look just like snot really floating on the surface, feeding on that all day. And there's so many of them that they're eaten by pretty much every small predator in the cave, such as the pseudoscorpion or the spiders. The most abundant by mass species is actually a type of millipede. And it's kind of cool because they can't swim in the water, but they want to feed on the bacteria. So they will kind of migrate down and feed along the shoreline. And when they're doing this, they can be ambushed by water scorpions, which will hide below the surface and then pounce and grab them, which is really just a zebra and a crocodile, except scaled down. Yes, I was just thinking about that. The wildebeest and the crocodiles in planet Earth. Yeah, it's literally the exact same thing going on here, which I I love so much. That's great. 
The other primary consumers are isopods, aka roly polies. You've probably seen them in your backyard before. Mm-hmm. And these three groups of animals are the main food source for all the other cave species. Most of them are too small to feed on anything except the springtails or the young of the isopods and millipedes. This would be the spiders, pseudoscorpions, and the beetles. The top predator of the cave is a centipede, which measures at a whopping 8 centimeters or about 3 inches. That's the giant of this system. So everything is pretty small in here. But it can feed on whatever it wants. This is the tiger of the ecosystem. Got it. Got it. Okay. And that's about it for the cave wildlife. For a small cave, it's a surprisingly diverse ecosystem. Again, about 52 species, and every time they go down, they pretty much find something new. It's also really interesting, for at least from what I understand, most of the terrestrial animals are actually predators that feed on a few but very abundant species that eat the bacteria, whereas in the water, most of the animals feed on the bacteria with only a few predator species. So they're kind of flipped. And it is insanely difficult to actually analyze how abundant some of these animals are. In one paper I saw, they stated how to accurately approximate the population of one species of isopod. They would have to swim down into the lake, squeeze through a hole that requires them to take their scuba tank off their back and push it through the hole first, and then they crawl through after it. And then they can pop up into an air pocket and count the bugs. Yeah, that's not worth it. Oh, no. We gotta have a drone for that or something. Yeah, there's no way I'm ever doing anything close to that. I'd be scared to take off my scuba tank when I was just underwater, much less in a cave. Much less in a cave with really, really small openings. Yeah, they to study this environment, you have to be hardcore. You have to be really dedicated. Thankfully, no one has died in here. I think the word you're looking for is crazy. (laughs) We're crazy. Now, I'm aware I listed off many different invertebrates, and I use some of their more scientific names. So it's okay if you didn't recognize many of these species. The key takeaway is every animal that I listed, you can readily find on the surface, most likely in your backyard. So all the aquatic animals I mentioned have relatives you can find in a small pond. And all the terrestrial ones that I mentioned you can find under a log in the woods or in your basement most likely. Okay, so these are just highly adaptable organisms that are able to survive in what to us would be very toxic conditions? Yeah, but that's also the key to understanding that how this unique environment came to be. Scientists estimate about 5 million years ago this environment sealed up. And the leading theory is that there's just a bunch of small invertebrates that made their way underground seeking shelter during a cold period and kind of worked their way into the cave system. So all the animals in this cave, it's very likely that they were just on top of the ground and they happened to work their way in and then they adapted to the environment. Gotcha. Gotcha. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, it backs up the claim that this cave has been closed up for a long time because these insects have not escaped at all. And if they were escaping, you know, they probably wouldn't have this lack of pigmentation. They probably still have their eyesight as well. They wouldn't have all these cave adaptations. So it's easy to see how a group of animals kind of fell into this cave and then collectively they all evolved 
to live in this environment. No, that's, that's a really fascinating kind of cave island that's going on there. Yeah, exactly. It's a cave island that's deep, but also not super deep. It's only 100 feet down. Yeah. It's weird. It's unique, and there is, as far as we know, nothing else quite like it. And needless to say, this ecosystem is a fragile one. Only three researchers, as I mentioned, are allowed in this cave at a time, only once per year. And during this time, they actually have to change into a clean set of clothing as soon as they enter the cave to prevent introducing foreign bacteria. Makes sense. And only a few dozen people have had the privilege or, or maybe the burden of visiting this cave. <laughs> In the documentary, one researcher even talked about how he lost his oxygen tank. And because he'd been in there and knew his way around, he barely made it to an air pocket in time to catch his breath. That's terrifying. Yeah, this is a rough area. So it's probably for the best that they restrict who goes into it. Can't even imagine how many hours of safety training you have to go through to even be slightly qualified to go in there. That being said, I don't know if this area is actually as protected like other areas like the Devil's Hole, which I mentioned what, episode six or seven? It was a while back, where that has fences and surveillance now. I mean, I looked this up on Google Earth, and it's right by a small town. It is half a mile from cornfields. You, you could just walk over to it if you really wanted to. Right, and didn't didn't the Devil's Hole like have teenagers breaking in and vandalizing it or something? It had people breaking in and vandalizing, and also had people breaking in to go diving, and two of them were never found. I feel like the lack of notoriety is really helping this place out. Also, the toxic gases. Yeah, I don't know why you'd really want to go into this cave. Don't go into this cave. Just because you can walk right up to it doesn't mean you, you should. Unless you really want to keep your farts a secret, in which case, I don't know, find a secluded bathroom. Don't go in the cave. Drop a textbook. <laughs> <laughs> this is the classic. Just got to time it right. That being said, ending on an important note, we have very good reasons to protect this cave, for one. It's a very unique ecosystem that we could learn so much from. Every time they go down there, they are learning a lot of new things. Aside from the unique wildlife, it is the only environment that is not dependent on sunlight besides the bottom of the ocean, at least that we know of. And even then, at the bottom of the ocean, where there are communities around hydrothermal vents, they still get nutrients coming from the surface whale falls as you talked about in the first episode they still come down that is a big part of the ecosystem which are just dead whales that fall to the bottom and it is just an all-you-can-eat buffet for all the animals out there sure thing yep but this is completely sealed off it's not getting anything in from the outside world so studying this environment means we may be able to apply this knowledge and search for life on other planets or more locally there are other caves that are filled with these sulfur vents. We might stumble upon another one that is sealed with its own unique life. So this cave is essentially one big science experiment, five million years in the making. Cool. Cool. And that's my piece. That's awesome. It's nice to hear about a really cool cave that I don't ever want to visit. I'll watch a documentary. It's a cool cave. I will study it. There's a lot of places I would visit. This is not one of them. Yes, yes. I would definitely check out the documentary, but I would not physically go to the cave. So. I know you were excited for this one. Oh, yes. Yes, I was. 
this is going to sound a little weird given how excited I was to do this particular topic, but I don't really have a specific species in mind. The first thing really that I want to talk about is just how little we know about the deep, you know, oceans or lakes or caves, whatever the case may be. We just know so, so little. And this is partly what makes it such a cool topic, because we don't know what we'll find whenever we journey into these places. You just mentioned that every time they go into those caves, they find something new. And the same is true of almost every deep sea expedition. They observe some new behavior or some new species in some cases. This is also what makes it so thoroughly terrifying, at least for me, because I don't want to swim or be in a submersible in the deep ocean because I don't know what's there. And that's really, really terrifying. And that's what makes most things terrifying, honestly, for people. So seeing it in documentaries, like we just discussed, is about as close as I'd like to get. When we do find something, we're rarely able to observe its behaviors for very long because deep sea creatures are, we think, solitary by nature. And our capacity to observe them is still pretty limited. So we can't exactly spend hours and hours and much less days in the deep observing them. With this in mind, it kind of presents some issues, at least for me, when finding a specific organism to discuss for a podcast, right? Because there are tons of things down there that would be fascinating to discuss, but we don't know enough about them to really fill a full segment. So, like, I can't tell you the number of times that I came across a wonderfully weird or creepy creature from the depths of the ocean that I thought would be a fantastic topic only to hit a wall shortly after deciding to make it the topic I wanted to discuss because we just don't know that much about it and there wasn't enough for me to fill a full segment. Yeah, there's barely a couple paragraphs on the animal alone. Now, turning yeah. that into a podcast, I mean, you'd really have to filibuster that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I got to stretch it out. I got to be like Ted Cruz reading Green Eggs and Ham on the congressional floor. People forget about that one. That's a classic. <laughs> I have found a solution to this problem, which is to talk about multiple different organisms. Specifically, I want to talk about two different organisms. The first one is the whalefish. This organism lives in the midnight zone of the ocean at depths of a thousand meters or deeper. So about half a mile for, the, for those of us not abiding by the metric system. They are about a foot in length. They range anywhere from eight inches to 14 inches. And they have these weird oversized mouths, which is how they were named. The mouth kind of makes them look like a tiny model of a baleen whale. Thus, they became the whalefish. And they're red in color, which is very common in the deep, right? Because red light travels very poorly through seawater. So anything that is red in color just appears black down there. Most shrimp and fish have some kind of reddish hue, at least when we see them. Also, like many other deep sea creatures, their eyesight is quite poor. So you talked about the cave invertebrates losing their eyesight. A similar kind of thing has occurred with the whalefish here, where their eyes are just, they still have eyes, but they're very small and they don't have lenses. So this means they can't even form images and the eyes are probably just there to sense the level of light around them. This in and of itself is an interesting topic of conversation because how much energy organisms devote to eyesight in the deep is very bimodal, which is to say that organisms either invest very heavily in eyesight because they need to have fantastic eyes to see anything in such low light conditions, or they hardly even bother having eyes at all. And in this case, the whalefish has clearly chosen the latter. However, 
the most remarkable part of the piece of the whale fish, at least for me, are their sensory systems, specifically their version of the lateral line system. So most fish have this lateral line sensory system, as I discussed on the show before with the giant salamanders. The whale fish really takes it to another level. Their sensory pores are much, much larger than those of a fish near the surface. So large, in fact, that they give the whale fish like this crocodile-like aesthetic because they appear to have these large scales that run down the sides of their body like these scutes. So they kind of almost look like dragons. So their lateral line systems are really on another level compared to other fish, enough at least to offset their poor eyesight. Sorry, I actually had to look up a photo of these guys. They are gnarly. Yeah, yeah, they're really crazy looking. They're very cool looking. Really, really fascinating. You're right. They just got tiny little eyes there. Yeah, they're barely there at all. Beyond this, we don't really know much about the biology of the whalefish. They're likely lunge predators that rely on ambush tactics that swallow their prey whole. And we're pretty sure about this because we found specimens with the whole fish in the stomach. So it was probably swallowed whole. But beyond that, we just don't know much, despite the fact that we've known about them for over a century now. The first specimens were discovered sometime in the late 1800s. I'm guessing they are generalists. Yeah. Yeah. Down there, it's pretty much you eat what you can find if you can swallow it, as we discussed with the black swallower, if you remember that episode. You can't afford to be picky down there. Not at all. What you get is what you get. Picky kids are very soon dead kids in the deep ocean. That's pretty much my synopsis of the whalefish. It's just a really, really cool fish with a really cool uh, sensory system that's very different from our own and clearly indicates just a different way of living in the deep sea, at least compared to how humans normally live. Moving on to the second fish, this one is called the big nose fish. So this fish lives in the same kind of environments as the whalefish and is very creatively named because, shockingly, it has a very large snout with large organs that are dedicated to smell. Well, now i got to look up a photo. Maybe I should have been more specific because I'm just... Actually, I don't think I'm seeing the right fish at all. I'm looking at, like, Photoshopped images. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a bit obscure. And I'm, I'm very curious to see what kind of images come up will come up for you, and you'll understand why in about three or four minutes. Yeah, I'm getting photos of Gar. I don't think that's what I'm looking for. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but Photos um, of Gar, and I'm getting, like, really bad AI photos of, like, goldfish with noses. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure you're getting all kinds of crazy stuff. Big nose fish are really worth discussing for several different reasons. For one thing, they have fixed upper jaws. So this really inter- would interfere with their ability to swallow anything or just feed in general. The second is that they have very large livers for a fish of their size. We aren't really sure why. Um, it's just an abnormally large organ for these fish. They're called the big nose fish. So I'm guessing they're bullied a lot and they've <laughs> developed these large livers to cope with the alcoholism that <laughs> ensues with that. I mean, imagine you have one insecurity. Like, it's just one thing that you don't like about yourself. And you get named after it. 
and that that is what people call you from here on out. They spend a lot of time with the psychologist fish as well. I'd be looking for a way to cope. (laughs) Anyway, but perhaps the most remarkable aspect of these fish is the fact that they don't have stomachs or any digestive organs. Yes, you heard that correctly. No stomachs and no digestive organs. Does the nose have something to do with it? Do they have like a mini stomach in there? That's the thing. That's why the mouth is fixed. They're snorting their prey. They're doing lines of plankton. We have no idea how they feed. Yeah, we just have no idea. So it's this incredible mystery that that there are these fish that are swimming around in the deep sea, don't have any digestive organs, and have mouths that would probably really restrict their ability to feed. What the hell is going on? So you're probably wondering why I decided to discuss these two specific types of fish together. That's going to make a lot more sense once I reveal two specific pieces of information. Number one, we have never discovered a male whalefish. And number two, we have never discovered a female bignose fish. Oh, okay. There we go. Yes. These belong to the same genus of fish. Well, that's why I couldn't find a big nose fish on Google. <laughs> yes, precisely. This is an extreme example of sexual dimorphism. Both the big nose fish and the whalefish belong to the genus Cetomimidae. So there are several species in this genus, about 30 or so, but they all have the same general male-female setup. They have the same kind of dimorphism where the females are relatively large and have these really large jaws and small eyes and complex lateral line system. The males have no digestive system whatsoever, and this large liver and this nose that is really good at smelling in the deep ocean. Both the male and female morphs have been known for decades. We just thought that they were separate species because they look so different. And the fact that there were only male big noses and only female whale fishes was just thought to be down to pure chance, some other unknown factor. But honestly, we have so few specimens from the deep ocean relative to the amount of life that's down there that it just wasn't seen as that big of a deal that we had only male big nose fish and only female whale fish. Like, okay, it just kind of so happens that we're only getting females or we're only getting males. It makes sense if you have such a small sample size, then... You could just chalk it up as really bad luck. Right, exactly. And that's what happened for decades until 2003 when a Japanese research team led by uh, Masaki Miya, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, found that the the mitochondrial DNA of a big-nosed fish was identical to that of a whalefish. And together with researchers from the Smithsonian Natural History Museum, they really closed the case and really settled the fact that the big-nosed fish and the whalefish were in fact the same species. The reason that the male big nose fish don't have any digestive organs is because they just don't eat, right? Their sole purpose is to use their incredible sense of smell to find a female whale, to find a whale fish so that they can reproduce. That's it. That's all they're there to do. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. That's what I was thinking when you first brought it up, but I did not think the two were the same. Right. Right, so real anglerfish kind of vibes here. And I have to ask, with the when they did the mitochondrial DNA test to find that they were related, was there like a theory 
for this going in, or was it just like pure, like, hey, let's just do a DNA test on these fish? I, I pulled them out of a trawl. It could be fun. You know, I think I- I'm not sure. I never like saw an interview with people who originally ran the DNA, but I really have a feeling that it was just random. Like they were sequencing all these different deep sea fishes and from specimens that had been just sitting in a basement somewhere for decades. Lo and behold, they have this crazy match. That's honestly the way that I think it could have happened. If you think that's crazy enough, enter fish number three. Oh my God. Because another enduring mystery to this puzzle was that no juvenile big noses or whalefish had ever been caught or observed. All specimens of whalefish or big nose fish were, had reached sexual maturity. So we now introduce a third species, quote unquote, known as the tape tail. This fish is entirely different from the big nose fish and the whalefish in that, for one, it lives near the surface, relatively speaking, at depths of about 200 meters where they feed on shellfish using their flexible jaw parts. So, and the distinguishing feature about these fish are their tails. They have these really long uh, anal fins that can be nine to 10 times as long as the body. So it kind of makes them look like they have streamers coming off of them. It's very festive. And as you may have guessed, all tape tails that we have found are juveniles. We never found an adult tape tail. We didn't know why, again, for decades. And so this means that as they mature, tape tails undergo a really, really extreme form of metamorphosis. So if you're a male tape tail, you lose your digestive organs completely. Your once flexible jaws now become completely rigid and you lose these long streamer tails that you had and you gain these really large noses. That's some pretty extreme puberty for you. And of course, if you're a female tape tail, you get these lateral line protrusions, you grow a lot larger, and you almost completely lose your eyesight. So this is absolutely insane. And we didn't know about this for sure until about 15 years ago, despite the fact that we've known about whalefish for, you know, 120, 130 years at this point, And we've known about the tape tails and the big nose fish for 60 or 70 years at this point. It's really, really crazy to think about the fact that we've really only put this together within the last couple of decades. And was the tape tail, did they figure that out in the same go when they paired the big nose and the whalefish together? No, no. They kind of started to put this together when they found tape tails that were mid-metamorphosis, that were kind of starting to grow a little bit of a nose. And so that's really how they put this together. The way I structured this podcast isn't chronological necessarily. It was just most convenient for the, for this episode because it was an episode about the deep. And it would have been really weird if I introduced, if I started off my bit talking about a species that only lives at 200 meters and not the deep sea. But I digress because this is perhaps the only known example of metamorphosis occurring in the same species with such extreme sexual dimorphism, at least among vertebrates, right? So others, other vertebrates will undergo metamorphosis. You know, the most obvious example being a frog or a salamander, the level of sexual dimorphism seen in those species is nowhere near as extreme as it is for Cetamimidae. No, that that is absolutely insane. And I had no idea. I've never heard of these till you brought it up. Right. I thought you 
the way you worded it, you had me going. I thought it was just like, ah, oh, you know, it was a cool fish. wasn't much to talk about it. Yes, that's exactly what I was trying to do. <laughs> Even though I mentioned that we made this connection because of like because of discovering tape tails that were mid metamorphosis, so to speak, they still looked very little like their adult selves. They would have still been classified as tape tails. So without DNA analysis, this connection probably still wouldn't have been made we still would think that they're three separate species in completely different families. And again, most of the analysis were done with samples that were decades old. They were just sitting preserved in formaldehyde in a basement somewhere, and eventually someone decides to sequence the DNA and finds that, lo and behold, they're all one species. These are the kinds of scientific breakthroughs that can happen when you're studying the deep sea because of how little we truly know. We find all these ways that species are interconnected and have co-evolved that we just had no idea about. So it's this really, really remarkable new frontier for scientific exploration. Turns out that samples that have been sitting around for decades could be the key to a really cool scientific breakthrough. And I get the sense now that there's a lot of people that are going through old archives in the back of a museum, all these old fish specimens, and they're just testing everything. It's all just jigsaw pieces now. They're seeing what they can fit together. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure this really set off like was like a starter's pistol for all this DNA sequencing that started occurring. Because, yeah, that's what I do if I was a deep sea uh, scientific researcher. You can see now why I've been sitting on this for a while and really, really wanted to talk about it. Because I came across this topic like a year ago. And ever since oh, then, I've... wow. <laughs> yeah. You've really been waiting for this. Yeah, yeah. So when I write up the script for our podcast, I type all of my scripts up on the same document and I have a, like a list of potential other topics that I want to talk about. And this one had stayed on there throughout the whole, basically last year. And it just stayed there because I kept bringing up deep sea part two, deep sea part two, and you kept shooting it down. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was worth the wait. Good, good. I'm glad you think so because I've really, really wanted to talk about it. The whale, fishes are, the whale fishes are so cool. And the story behind it is even more fascinating, if you ask me. That was insanely cool. And I was going to throw up some pictures of these, but now I think I shouldn't because it's like a big reveal. Yeah. And also, yeah, now I, I have to see a proper... Okay, that's what the big nose looks like. Yeah. It's really striking. You could see why scientists did not put this together for decades. No, I certainly wouldn't. They look nothing alike. Nothing, yeah, not at all. So, what are you thinking about for the next episode? Okay, so I found I, I found a really cool topic that I have to talk about. There's like an easy way we can do this to pick a topic, or a harder way. Would you? What would you rather do? First of all, you're phrasing that like I'm being interrogated, which automatically makes me <laughs> uncomfortable. But I guess the easy way... All right, well, then we can do a stream episode. Okay, sure. Like, I can work yeah. with that. Yeah, I've, I've found a cool one. All right, sounds good. You want to take us out? If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a follow or review on your podcast app of choice. And if you have a suggestion for a future episode, you can reach us at theprimordialsouppot at gmail.com or find us on X at Souppot Podcast. All right, sounds good. And until next time, I'm Rustin. And I'm Aaron. See ya.